There's a French writer by the name of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Don't ask me if that's the right way to say it or not, but Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, a French writer, he once said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them to tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That's good advice. Understanding the goal, understanding the ultimate purpose of what you're trying to do can can be exhilarating and motivating. Tasks that would otherwise be tedious and boring all of a sudden take on momentous importance because you understand how those small tasks add up and push you closer to that grand vision, that, that great goal. And as we wrap up these chapters on the instructions for the tabernacle, it's helpful to remember the purpose of all these detailed instructions. So if you have your Bible open to Exodus 25, I invite you to to look there at verses 8 and 9. This is really the key here in our passage in in these many chapters. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9 say this, "...and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God longs to dwell with his people. He longs to dwell with his people. And even perhaps you you heard it repeated in the scripture reading in in Psalm 37, uh, this emphasis on the land, on the land. They would dwell in the land, that God would bless them in the land because God would dwell with them, yes, in the tabernacle and more generally, in the land that he was giving them. He was bringing them into the promised land where he would dwell in their midst. This was the goal. This was the key to understanding these chapters. And remember, after God delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt, God brought them to Mount Sinai, and he commissioned them to be his priests, a kingdom of priests. They're going to be his representatives to the world. And then he gave them instructions on how to build a tent so that he would dwell among them, so he could dwell among them. Now, I don't know about your family, but when people come over to our house to visit, sometimes we need to do a little bit of tidying up, just a little. And the reason is to, hypothetically, to save us from some embarrassment. Well, if, if God is not only going to visit you, but he's going to dwell among you, you need to make special preparations for such an honored guest. Not because you're worried about being embarrassed, but because he is a holy God. And you and I are sinful people. And it's not about saving us from embarrassment, but saving us from immediate death. So these detailed instructions about how to build a tabernacle, how to build a dwelling place, a tent of meeting, they remind us of how great a privilege it is for God to dwell in our midst, and also how great a danger it is for God to dwell in our midst. So this morning, I want to wrap up our time in these instructions for the tabernacle by asking the question, so what? How do these instructions apply to us today? What are we supposed to do with this? And to answer that, we have to understand that great vision. Uh, to understand the purpose of the tabernacle, how it both points back to the garden and how it also points forward to heaven and what that means for us today. 
We've talked a little bit about some of the details. We've talked about the, the, the fabrics and the materials. And, and I want you to now take a step back and not lose the forest for the trees to, as that French writer says, to, to get a, a glimpse of that grand immensity of the sea. So this morning, I'll be referencing a lot of scripture, and we might not turn to every passage. Uh, we won't be able to camp or tabernacle on any passages uh, because I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see the big picture of what is going on. So this morning, I want us to learn three lessons, three lessons from the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation. Three lessons from the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation. First lesson that we learn from, from that progression there is that they clarify God's purpose. If you understand the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation rightly, they clarify God's purpose. They clarify God's purpose. Now, I've mentioned a couple times over the last couple weeks that the tabernacle and the temple later on were specifically designed to represent the Garden of Eden. And in fact, that's probably uh, because the garden was originally intentionally designed, created to be a temple from the very start. God created the garden, God created the world, and specifically the Garden of Eden, to be a temple, to be a place where God would fellowship with man and where man would know and love and serve God. So let me remind you of what we've learned about the tabernacle so far. So just some brief highlights here. God's purpose for the tabernacle was that God would dwell among them, right? This is why it's not only called a tabernacle, a tent, but it's also called a tent of meeting, a place where God would not only dwell by himself, but a tent of meeting where he would meet with man. So God's purpose for the tabernacle was that he would dwell among his people. Second, God's presence in the most holy place, or sometimes called the holy of holies, God's presence was closed off from the east by a veil with cherubim. You entered the Holy of Holies from the east, but it was cut off by a veil, a curtain that was interwoven with cherubim, angels. Third, the tabernacle was filled with garden-like imagery, a lampstand that resembled a tree. Some would say perhaps the tree of life. It was a lampstand that resembled a tree with flowers and blossoms. The, the priests had, a, had robes with pomegranates. There was gold and onyx. Again, onyx specifically always being, mentioning, uh, being mentioned in reference to the temple or the priests and the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was filled with garden-like imagery. And also, I briefly mentioned this last week, but seven times, from Exodus 25 to Exodus 31, seven times it says, the Lord said to Moses, 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 seven times. Seven should remind us of something else, of creation. Seven days of creation. And guess what the last time God says uh, in, in Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, guess what he gives instructions about on that last time? He gives instructions about the Sabbath, about resting. And if you rewind to creation, what happened on the seventh day? God rested. God rested. So the seventh time that it says the Lord said to Moses, this was about rest, about the Sabbath. Now, there are some other details that we don't see here in Exodus 25 to 31, but from later scriptures, let me just bring some of these in to fill out our understanding of the tabernacle and the temple. From later in scripture, the priests were instructed to serve or minister, it's same word in Hebrew. They were instructed to minister and to guard the tabernacle. You see this in Numbers 3, Numbers 8, and Numbers 18. They were commanded, they were instructed to 
to guard and to minister in the tabernacle. Keep those two words in mind. The most holy place, the holy of holies, uh, was in the shape of a cube. We learn that later on in Scripture as well. This was implied in Exodus in the tabernacle, but it's made explicit in 1 Kings. The, the Holy of Holies, where the ark would dwell, where God's presence would be, was a cube. So the, the length, height, width, breadth, all of it was equal. Later on, the tabernacle would be replaced by a permanent structure on a mountain, the temple in Jerusalem. It would be placed up on a mountainside. It would be built on a mountain. Now, with all that in mind, I want you to turn back to Genesis 1. I want you to see these connections for yourself. And again, we won't be able to dwell and and camp on any one of these, but I just want to highlight a few things here. Genesis 1.1, and some of these I'll tie up later as well, but Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want you to remember that. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then we get these seven days of creation, where God speaks everything into being, and the seventh day is about rest. God rested on the seventh day. Chapter 2, verse 10 You see there it says that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And it talks about the land all around there, and there's gold and onyx and all of that. So there's a river flowing out of Eden. And by the way, here I would say that this implies that Eden was on a mountain because rivers flow downstream. There's some elevation here. So Eden is on a mountaintop. And in fact, later scriptures speak of the garden being on a mountain. In fact, Ezekiel 28, verses 13 to 14 this is, this is speaking of a, a, a lament or, a, or a, a, a curse against a certain king that would come to represent uh, something greater spiritual reality. But Ezekiel 28 talks about the garden in this way. Speaking to this individual, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Perhaps you, if you've read through the Psalms, you hear that language of who may ascend the, the hill of the Lord? Who may approach the hill of the Lord? Uh, who, who can come into his holy habitation? All these ideas give us that, that, that implication. It teaches us that the garden was on a mountaintop. Eden was on the mountain of God. Genesis 2.15, you can skip down there. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work the garden and to keep it. The Hebrew words for that are, could be translated to minister and to guard. Priestly language. Priestly language. And in fact, these, these verbs are only used together to describe Adam and Eve in the garden and to describe the priests in the tabernacle. In the books of Moses, the only time these two words are used together are to describe Adam and Eve and the priests in the temple. Oh, what this kind of shows us is that the garden was like a temple and Adam and Eve were like priests. Genesis 3.8, jump down over there. It says, and they, that's Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. That's that idea, walking, not to get from point A to point B, but walking as in dwelling with, having a relationship with. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this was after Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit. So it says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. What a sad statement. We ought to long for the presence of the Lord our God, but it says here they hid themselves. God was walking in their midst, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And then Genesis 3, verse 24, 
After all is said and done, it says this, that the Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. One of my favorite short children's books is called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And the way that the author puts it is this. He says, it is wonderful to live with him. Speaking of God, it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. The cherubim there with the flaming sword, it's wonderful to live with God, but because of your sin, you can't come in. Later in the temple, in the tabernacle, there's a curtain with cherubim that you enter from the east. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Do you see how the the tabernacle was meant to be a picture of Eden, of the garden? It's the place where man could dwell with God, though in a limited fashion. God would dwell in their midst, and yet there were curtains to separate them. Later, biblical authors would reflect on these themes and describe God's work of creation in terms that sound like the building of the tabernacle. When, when the, the Psalms talk about God creating the world, it describes it in the language of a tabernacle, of a tent. Psalm 104, Psalm 104 says to the Lord, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, and it says stretching out the heavens like a tent. He stretches out the heavens, the skies, the whole universe. He stretches it out like a tent like a curtain of the tabernacle. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. God is creating the world, much like he would tell Moses to create the tabernacle. Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is he, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth. He sits above the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God created the world to be a a temple, a tent to dwell in, The, the garden being, in a sense, the holy of holies, as it were. So you see that the tabernacle is pointing back to the garden, to the original creation. In fact, the exodus and their arrival into the promised land is described almost like another creation, almost like they're entering the garden once again. I just want you to think about this, right? I mentioned this in Genesis 1 to highlight this, that when God created the heavens and the earth, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Remember that? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and then when he, when he created, he spoke, and the land was formed out of this water. Right? The waters were separated. And then God would dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden on a mountain. I want you to consider how God delivered Noah. Noah was in a boat. The waters covered the face of the earth. And if you remember closely, it says that a wind blew over. Now, in Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach. The word for wind is ruach. It's the same word. It's the same in Greek, actually, what's interesting. Uh, pneuma can mean spirit or wind in the New Testament as well. So the spirit hovered over the waters at creation. The wind blew over the waters in the days of Noah. And then guess where Noah's ark landed? On a mountain, on a mountaintop, where Noah would make an altar and sacrifice animals up at the top, almost like a sanctuary. And how did God deliver Israel out of Egypt, there was water, the Red Sea. All night, a wind blew. A ruach was over the waters until the waters parted. And guess what was there? Dry land. Dry land. And they pass through, and they come to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. This is meant to evoke for us a picture of creation, that that God's deliverance of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt was like a new creation out of the waters, out of the waters of death. 
But the tabernacle, and even later the temple, as glorious as they were, as ornate and filled with gold and everything else they were, they were still limited and limiting. You had to go to this one place among this one people, and even then only one person could go in one day a year past the curtain, past the cherubim, into God's presence. This was a great blessing, but it was still very limited. But God wasn't done yet. His purposes were not ultimately fulfilled in the tabernacle or the temple because God is sovereign. And so the way the Bible ends is the way that he intends for it to end. And we read this before. You can just listen in Revelation 21. So so remember, let them make for me a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. I want to dwell with them. I want to walk in their midst, later it says in Leviticus 26. And at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the story that God is writing, at the end of history that God is orchestrating, it says in Revelation 21, behold, guess what? The dwelling place of God is with man. Wow. Wow. And in fact, Revelation 21, you can, you can turn there or just listen. Revelation 21, all the way at the end of your Bibles, verses 9 to 11, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, down to verse 15 and 16. And, I, and, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. If, if a shape has a length, width, and height that are equal, it is called a cube. Like the holy of holies. Do you see how the the garden was then pictured in the tabernacle? And the tabernacle was pointing forward to the new heavens and new earth, to the new Jerusalem. A perfect cube where God would dwell with his people. There's so much more to be said about this. I jump down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. No temple in the new Jerusalem because it... Why would you need a temple where God's limited at this point? I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And listen to this, and its gates will never be shut. In the the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is shut off. There's a curtain. There's a cherubim. Because of your sin, you can't come in. The new Jerusalem, the true holy of holies, the perfect holy of holies, not just a representation, but the true thing itself, its gates are never never shut. They're never shut. Access to God is open because of Christ's sacrifice. Now, let 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 me back up here. So, With all this being said, so what was God's purpose in creation? In the first place, what was God's purpose there in creation in Genesis? What was God's purpose in, so to speak, the new creation of the tabernacle in delivering Israel from Egypt? And what is the final goal of the new creation in the new heavens, new earth? What is God's goal in all of this? Two words for you, rest and relationship. Rest 
and relationship. When God finished the creation week in Genesis, what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Does God ever need to rest? I mean, no matter how difficult the task, does God ever need to rest? No. I mean, I walk upstairs and I need to rest for a minute before doing anything else. But God has no need to rest. So why does he rest? This is worth thinking about. John Walton, an Old Testament scholar, he says this, on the seventh day, we finally discover that God has been working to achieve a rest. The seventh day is not a theological appendix to the creation account just to bring closure now that the main event of creating people has been reported. Rather, the Sabbath intimates the purpose of creation and of the cosmos, the universe. The the Sabbath represents the purpose. It shows to us the purpose of creation itself. He says this, God does not set up the cosmos so that only people will have a place. He also sets up the cosmos to serve as his temple in which he will find rest in the order and equilibrium that he has established. He created the world. He worked so that he might enter into rest. Not just rest because he's tired, but rest with his people. The rest can't come until Adam and Eve are created. He rests on the seventh day to rest in relationship with his people. Rest doesn't mean idleness. For us, it means blessed Fulfilling fruitfulness. It's not idleness from anything. It's fulfilling and blessed fruitfulness. As man filled the earth and worked the garden, so one day the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. Remember he says, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? They're made in God's image. Now be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it in my name. Subdue it in my image. So if Adam and Eve are made in God's image and they're supposed to multiply and fill the earth, ultimately the whole earth will be filled with the image of God. The whole earth will be full of the glory of God. This is God's purpose, that the whole earth be full of his glory as the waters are covered, as the seas are covered with water. So God wants to fill the world with his glory by means of his image bearers, Adam and Eve. And so he does that by rest and relationship. Be blessed, fill the earth. So the seven days of creation ends with rest, ends with relationship. How did God finish the tabernacle instructions? Not with a flurry of activity, not with a loud bang, but with the command to rest. The seven, the Lord said to Moses, ends with commands about the Sabbath. Why? Because the goal of not just creation, but the goal of the tabernacle is that man might rest in relationship with God. That man might rest in relationship to God. God wants to dwell with his people in order to give them rest. Can I, can I say it this way? Is it any wonder that one of the sweetest, most cherished verses in the New Testament is when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. We live in a world that is anxious. We live in a world that is never satisfied. We live in a world that is full of sin and death and pain where we cannot rest. 
But God longs to dwell with his people in perfect rest. To dwell with his people and say, you are my people and I am your God. That is the goal of creation. That was the point of the tabernacle. That is the goal of the new creation. So the understanding the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation helps to clarify God's purpose. He wants to dwell. He wants to give rest. He wants to bless. He wants to be with us, his people. What an amazing blessing. Second lesson is that they compel God's people. They compel God's people. I want you to consider this for a moment, that in the Old Testament, in Israel, God dwelled in a tent. God dwelled later on in a building, in the temple. You could say that these buildings, these places, were the actual place where God resided. His glory dwelt there. His presence dwelt there. It was a sanctuary. Now, we often refer to this room as the sanctuary. Eh, not quite right. Does God dwell in this room? Now, okay, he's, om- he's omnipresent, so, you know, somebody's going to be like, well, you know, God's everywhere. Okay, yes, yes, but does he dwell in that special way of blessedness like he did in the tabernacle? Does he dwell in this room like that? And the answer is absolutely not. This is not a sanctuary. This is not a dwelling place of God. You know what is the dwelling place of God? Y'all. Lived in Jacksonville, the south. I love that. You all, y'all. The New Testament says again and again, we are the temple of God. Yes, in one place it talks about you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit living within you. Yes, there's an individual sense in which that's true. But the overwhelming emphasis in the New Testament is not that you yourself are the temple of the living God, but that we together are the temple, are the dwelling place of the living God. The point about us being the temple is not, therefore, stop eating so much junk food because you got to take care of that temple. That's the wrong application, completely. The point is, we together are the dwelling place of God and therefore be holy, therefore be set apart, therefore be set apart to worship him. Do not let sin be in our midst We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the glory, the the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle by means of a cloud and by fire. But God dwells among the temple today, among the church today, by means of his Holy Spirit. He dwells among us. In John 14, Jesus says these amazing words. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. Right now, he dwells with you and will be in you. The spirit of God was with Israel. The presence of God was with Israel. But one day, Jesus said, he will be in you. The Spirit of God. God will dwell not by cloud and by fire, but God will dwell himself by means of his Spirit in you, in y'all. And so what do we do with this? What what, what difference does this make? He doesn't dwell in a temple where we got to do some exact measurements and specifications of gold and what kind of fabric. He dwells in us. So now what does that mean for us? If they had to be careful about the details of the tabernacle because God was going to dwell in their midst, 
What does that say about us if God dwells in us individually and especially corporately? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter, yeah, okay, yeah. Second Corinthians chapter six. I'll skip the first Peter one. Second Corinthians six, starting in verse 14. Now, some of you are familiar with this passage as the one about not marrying or dating unbelievers. That's a reasonable application, but it is too narrow. It is far broader than that. Second Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And listen to verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Should you have idols in the temple of God? The answer is absolutely not. He says, for we, we together are the temple of the living God. As God said, now these words should sound familiar, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be sons to me and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. If God dwells in our midst, we must be holy. Now, this is not saying don't love unbelievers. We should love everybody, but who do we partner with? Who do we bind our lives with? Friend, if your closest relationships, if your closest friends, if your closest influences are those who do not love the Lord, that's going to be a, a danger to your soul. As I say to my children all the time, love everyone, choose your friends wisely. Love everyone, choose your partnerships wisely. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Therefore, go out and be separate from them. And look at chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, since we have these promises of God that he will dwell among us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's not just be separate from the world, but in our own lives, are we putting away idols? Are we putting away sin? Are we cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body. It's not about going out of the world. Jesus would say, right, be in the world but not of it. We need to watch our alliances, watch our partnerships, but more importantly, watch our heart, that the defilement of our body and spirit would be set aside, that we'd bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so if you are the temple and you all, y'all are, we have to pursue holiness together. We have to pursue unity together. We have to pursue love and relationships and forgiveness together because we don't want to tear the temple apart. Not only is this for holiness then, right, this the, the, the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation compels God's people. They, it compels us to holiness. It compels us to holiness, but it should also compel us to fruitfulness, to fruitfulness. There's a sense in which in the, in the first creation, man is supposed to work the garden and to keep it, and he's supposed to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and he's supposed to have dominion over the earth. Let me ask you something. If he is working the garden and, he, and they are multiplying and filling the earth, 
What's going to happen to the boundaries of the garden? It's going to expand. It's going to expand. Be fruitful and multiply. Make more image bearers of mine. Yes, this is the idea that the glory of God spreads as mankind is fulfilling what is called the cultural mandate to go and make this, uh, to go and be fruitful. Well, in a sense, that still stands, but the New Testament church has a different flavor of that. It's no longer an emphasis primarily on being fruitful and multiplying, but now the emphasis is go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. If you remember from a couple years ago, we were in Colossians. In Colossians 1, it says, Of this hope you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. That's a reference back to creation. The gospel is going forth and bearing fruit and increasing. This is what we're looking for. So if we understand the original goal of the, the creation and we understand the tabernacle and we understand the new creation where the glory of God fills the whole world, the, the light from God fills the whole world. There's no need of sun because the glory of God fills the whole earth. If that's where we're headed, then we want to be in the business of making disciples. We want to be in the business of, of expanding, so to speak, that temple by making disciples, by preaching the gospel, by telling everyone who will listen to us about Christ. So the garden, the tabernacle, and the new creation clarifies God's purpose, rest and relationship. It compels God's people towards holiness and fruitfulness, but they also comfort God's people. It comforts God's people. And we're, man, we're just, we're flying over stuff. I wish we could stop more, but we can't. They comfort God's people. Perhaps as, as we walk through this life and you just, you are weighed down and you are burdened by all that is wrong with the world and there's much that's wrong with the world. There's much that's wrong with the church. There's much that's wrong with my own heart. It's, it's all tainted by sin. And it just seems to go in cycles. It's just this never ending, God, what are you going to do about this? It's not just the evil out there. It's the evil in here, especially especially in my heart. God, what are you going to do about all of this? And I'm comforted and encouraged by these words in Romans 8. Romans 8, starting in verse 18, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are waiting for this restoration of all things. This creation groans. You look out and you groan. You look within and you groan and you say, how long, O Lord? And he says, one day he will set all these things free from bondage. He will undo the corruption. He will undo the curse because Christ has died. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent. Christ has 
is in the process of making all things new, of undoing the curse, and one day we will be with him in the new heavens, new earth, no veil, no separation, no sin in my heart, no sin out there, and we will see him, and he will be our God. We will be his people. And so we suffer now with hope. We wait with hope. This is not all that it's meant to be. And for our our friends and our neighbors who are living in this life who are just racked with guilt, racked with sorrow, we can say to them, this is not how it's supposed to be. It's going to be better. Will you come with me? Will you trust in Christ? This is the hope that we have. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know this, this is what we gather together to talk about, not just about fabrics in a tent, but we gather to remember Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the temple, who is the sacrifice, who is the priest, the one who gives rest for your souls. All these things are stitched together to point forward to Christ. So I want to end with just these last verses before we sing one song and transition to a time of communion. Revelation 21, I'll just read these last verses one last time for us. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As the worship team comes up to to lead us in one song, uh, if you do not have one of these cups, you can go grab one in the back, but let me pray as we transition to a time of communion. Oh Lord, we thank you for your blessing, for your grace, for your kindness, for the truth of your word that reveals to us who you are, what you have done in the past, and what you will do in the future. Lord, help us to rest in you and to trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.